0: This Dharma talk, entitled Deepening Happiness, was presented by Joseph Goldstein at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. After the Buddha's enlightenment, it's said that his compassion was aroused by one particular experience. And that is, when he looked around, when he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom, He saw that all beings were seeking happiness, were wanting happiness, and yet, by not understanding what actually brings happiness, they were doing the very things which brought them suffering. So seeing that, and seeing so many beings caught in this entanglement of ignorance and suffering, it aroused his compassion, to point out the way. When you read the Buddhist description of life in the universe, he had a vast vision. It was a vision not only of this one life, but of beings taking birth again and again, this cycle of life and death and rebirth, endlessly going on. He had the vision of many planes of existence, not just this human realm or animal realm, higher planes and lower planes and countless world systems. So his vision and his experience of the mystery of this universe was tremendously vast. One of my teachers, Munindraji, as he would describe all of these things, you know, the different realms and rebirth, and especially when he was talking to Westerners, he would always conclude it by saying, you don't really have to believe all this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. And so I think this is very important, that we stay open to possibilities. The poet Coleridge had a very nice phrase called it the willing suspension of disbelief. So we're not attached either to our beliefs or our disbeliefs. We stay open to the possibilities. Within this vastness of vision, the Buddha taught many possibilities of happiness, some of which extend far beyond what we usually consider. And it's in the understanding of one law, it's in the understanding of one principle, which is that actions, that each of our actions have consequences, that each of our actions brings result. This in the Buddhist, the Buddhist terminology is called the law of karma. It's from this understanding that we can begin to take a very active responsibility for the choices we make. When we understand that what we do has consequences. It's not without effect. When we really know this deeply, then we do take responsibility for the kinds of choices we make. And it's precisely this understanding which opens up for us new possibilities of happiness. What I'd like to talk about tonight are some of these possibilities. This is the happiness talk. (laughs) The first kind of happiness that we enjoy is the one that I think is most familiar to us, and that is the happiness of sense pleasures. No, the happiness we get from being in good surroundings, being in a pleasant environment, having good friends, having very agreeable or pleasurable sensations in the body. Even though these pleasures are impermanent, they're not lasting, they're quite fleeting, still for most of us, our experience is that in the moment that we're enjoying these things, there is a moment, there are moments of real delight, of lightness, of joy in our minds and in our lives. So, this is a very real pleasure, this is a very real happiness that comes to us in our lives. The Buddha talked of another kind of sense pleasure, which is even higher than the one we usually know. He talked of it in terms of the sense pleasures in the celestial realms, on these higher planes of existence, the deva realms. And in these realms, in these deva realms, the celestial realms, there's nothing unpleasant at all due to one's past good karma and if one takes rebirth in them. It's a tremendous, tremendous delight of the senses in these. One of the difficulties, of course, with rebirth in these realms is that if one has not practiced the Dharma, practiced meditation before, sort of going into it, it's quite difficult to concentrate the mind there you know, because of the delight of all the pleasures, the distractions. It's said that it's so much fun, those beings sometimes forget to eat and actually die from lack of... <laughs> they're so into the enjoyment. <laughs> However, those people who are born there with a background in practice, it's all fine. <laughs> So whether you believe in these other realms or you don't believe in them, still we can consider this first kind of happiness, which is the happiness of sense pleasures, either as a human being, as a celestial being. What the Buddha did, he pointed out the causes and conditions for this kind of sense happiness to arise. It doesn't happen accidentally for us. It falls within the realm of the law of karma because of certain conditions this kind of sense happiness is the result so he spoke very specifically about what are the causes what are the conditions he said that it was purity of action purity of conduct which was the cause for sense happiness sensual happiness to arise in people's lives whether it's a human being a celestial being What is this purity of action? It consists of the development and cultivation of two things. The first of them is the cultivation and strengthening and refinement of generosity. Generosity is a wonderful quality of mind. It's the first of the perfections of the Buddha. You know the what constitutes buddhahood is the perfection of many qualities generosity is listed first and there are stories from the jataka tales which are the stories of his previous births many lifetimes spent just in the practice of generosity what's very helpful to understand about this is that it is a practice we can actually cultivate this in ourselves he talked of three different levels of generosity in our lives. The first level he called beggarly giving. And that is when we give something or offer something, but it's really the worst of what we have. It's what we don't want, the leftovers, we never use it. And then still with a lot of doubt. Should I give it? Shouldn't I give it? <laughs> you know, next year I'll probably have a use for it. And so a lot of hesitation in the mind, but then we finally give. Okay, there's an act of generosity there, but that's called beggarly giving. The next level is friendly giving, where we really give what we would use for ourselves, and we give it with more spontaneity, with more joy in the mind, with more ease in the mind. The highest kind of generosity or the perfection of this quality could be called queenly or kingly giving, where the mind takes delight in offering the best of what we have. What we value the most for ourselves, when we can give that and offer that with a genuine delight and joy, that is the perfection of generosity. And I think it's not hard to imagine what kind of joy that actually brings us. The beauty of this quality of being is that the very practice of it brings us joy. Unlike meditation practice where we need to work a little bit for the joy, in generosity it's in the very act of the practice it brings us delight. There's tremendous power in this practice of giving. It's not an insignificant thing. The Buddha said that if we knew as he did the fruit of giving, we would not let a single meal pass without sharing. It has such great consequence for our happiness when we look carefully at how we feel in moments when we're being generous, it's, it's very obvious why this is so. Generosity is the expression in action of feelings of love, of caring, of compassion, of connection, of renunciation, of the ability to let go. So many wonderful feelings come in the very act of giving. And so through the practice of this, not only do we enjoy the happiness of it in the moment, it is the cause and condition, it's the karmic cause for happiness to arise in the future. Happiness of all the different kinds of sense pleasures that exist. So that's the first part of purity of action. The cultivation of generosity, the practice of it. The second part of purity of action is sila. That's the Pali word for morality. And what this means are a commitment to the basic precepts of non-harming in the Buddhist teaching, these are the basic five precepts that lay people follow. Commitment to not killing and not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not using wrong speech, false speech or harsh speech, not taking intoxicants which cloud the mind or delude the mind. Basic principles of non-harming, non-harming ourselves, non-harming other people. As with generosity, this commitment to the precepts is also a practice. Now, often I think we live in a way we feel, well, we're basically moral people. We don't go around hurting others. And we lose sight of the fact that each one of these precepts can be worked with and can be refined. They can be developed to a very great extent. And it works a certain magic in our lives when we are actually consciously practicing these precepts. First, they act as guidelines for us when we're unsure, when we're confused, when we're involved in a situation or an action, and we don't know. You know, is this right? Is this not right? Using the precepts as a reference point gives us some clarity of understanding whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. So it acts as a guideline. They can act as a reminder for us when we're caught up in the passion of desire, the passion of anger, you know, and there's this overwhelming intensity of energy in our minds and bodies, and we're swept along towards some action. If we're committed to the precepts, then they act as a strong reminder for us Okay, is this in harmony with the precepts or is it not? That very commitment can wake us up a little bit, can awaken us in those moments so that we can see we're not going ahead, plunging ahead in ignorance. The commitment to morality, the commitment to non-harming, in very specific ways, You know, it's not enough to have a commitment to the abstraction. I believe in non-harming. And then not actually pay attention to our actions. So this is the value of the specificity of the precepts, not as commandments, as reminders, as rules of training. This commitment is a tremendous support in our lives. It keeps us from sliding into simply acting out our conditioning. And really, Forced is a great wakefulness with respect to our actions. And it, it's the quality which is most ennobling of our humanity. Now, what is, it, what is the quality of humaneness? It's exactly this. It's exactly a moral integrity. The Buddha talked of sila, of morality, of non-harming, as being the true quality of beauty in a person. You now, In our culture, we're so fascinated with outer beauty. And outer beauty is really very unimportant. The true beauty is the quality of each one of us as human beings. That's where the beauty resides and resides in this aspect of moral integrity, of a real commitment to actions of non-harming. What happens is that we begin to live our lives without regret and without remorse. Because our actions are pure, because we're not harming, our minds are not filled with regret about what we've done or remorse or guilt. And so in this freedom from regret, there's a tremendous lightness, there's a tremendous joy. And it's morality, it's the power of morality which gives strength and power to our aspirations. And we each go through life with certain aspirations which we would like fulfilled. Why is it that for some people these aspirations are fulfilled easily and for some people there's a tremendous struggle. One of the great conditioning forces behind that is the strength of the sila. Not only does it give power to our own aspirations in a very fundamental way, this quality virtue, this quality of morality, is a tremendous gift to other people. And what it is, is the gift of fearlessness. It's the gift of trust. Because we're saying with our lives, with our actions, to everybody we meet, you need not fear me. In this world, that is a tremendous gift. It's the gift of trust to somebody. So these two together, the cultivation of generosity and the cultivation of morality, the real strengthening, the conscious development and refinement, quality of impeccability in our lives, This is what constitutes purity of action. And it's this which is the cause, this is which is the condition, not only for the happiness that it brings in the moment, it also is the cause and condition for these different kinds of sense happiness, sense pleasures to arise in the future. The lightness and joy that comes into our lives when we're practicing generosity, when we're practicing morality, also becomes the cause for the second kind of happiness. And that is the happiness of concentration. This is very different than the happiness of sense pleasures. The Buddha called this purity of mind. The happiness of concentration means that we develop the mind which is able to stay steady, which is able to stay one-pointed. And as we touch this and then strengthen and develop it, as the mind becomes more concentrated, there is an amazing quality of inner peace, of stillness, of calm. It's a quality of calm and peace that we have never experienced before. Because it's beyond the range. It's beyond the domain of our usual sense interactions. It's another level of experience that we can touch. When we begin to experience this happiness of concentration, there's a wonderful sense of ease and lightness and comfort in the body and mind. It's as if the body and mind are bathed, washed, in lightness, and softness. So it becomes a tremendous source of happiness for us. In this kind of happiness, we become refreshed rather than tired. It's interesting to watch us. As we enjoy the happiness of sense pleasures, what happens? We feel happy, we feel delighted, but at a certain point it's tiring. Now, how long can we eat? <laughs> how long can we listen to music, you know, or whatever, whatever our particular delight is? At a certain point it becomes tiring. With concentration of mind, that happiness is refreshing, it brings more and more energy to us. And so as we cultivate this, and this is is a capacity of the mind that we all have. We can all develop this. We find that our mind can stay resting in this state of concentration for longer and longer periods. The happiness that comes to us is actually for longer durations. Now I know this is possible to do because when I started my practice... I had zero concentration. First time I went to India and started to meditate, I was very excited by the whole thing. And you know, I had a tremendous interest and connection with it. But I would sit down, and I would think for the entire hour. I would just sit and think. And I'd get up. Oh, that was a good sitting. <laughs> you know, went fast, and I was entertained. It took a long time and a lot of perseverance. But I saw over the years, I have seen that actually the mind can be trained. And starting from where I started from, I know it's possible for anyone. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) So this happiness is possible for us. We need to do the work. We need to actually train ourselves. But the mind is trainable. What happens is, just as an image, just imagine sort of like a, an arch. And we're balanced at the top of the arch. And the mind keeps, or we keep slipping off one side and then the other. We have to struggle to get back to the top. And we're trying to stay balanced at the top. And we slide down and we climb back and we slide down the other side we climb back. It's a continual struggle. At a certain point in our practice, this arch inverts, and it becomes a trough. And we're resting in the bottom of the trough, and every once in a while the mind is pulled away from it, but it falls back down naturally to that place of balance. And we're pulled off on the other side, comes back naturally to the place of rest. That's what happens when we reach a certain level of development of concentration. There's a great ease. It's at this point that the practice actually becomes very delightful and and much easier. We're no longer in that sense of struggling to get back our balance. Concentration is the very great happiness of a quiet mind. And a quiet mind is wonderful. We can develop it in many different ways. There are many techniques for developing concentration of mind. We can do it by focusing on the breath, taking the breath as the primary object, focusing on the walking, focusing on changing objects. Concentration doesn't have to be on a fixed object, it can be on many different objects. We develop concentration through the practice of metta, the loving kindness or compassion. Many different ways. It's really for each to find the way that seems most suitable for us. What's the way that's most conducive to strengthen this state of one-pointedness, of collectedness? As we practice, and it takes some perseverance. It's not easy to do at first. If we're persevering, it starts to come more and more naturally. At first, we just get a glimpse. We may, we may settle into a, a peaceful state for a moment or two. And what's interesting for yogis is how powerful even that moment or two is. It actually brings people back for another retreat. <laughs> you know, Maybe 10 days of pain and struggle and suffering. Sort of just a glimpse of a possibility. And it's so strong for us It becomes a tremendous inspiration. Yeah, let me work at this. As it's developed and as it becomes stronger in us, we actually start to live out of this place. It's not something we're just visiting from time to time. We actually raise the level of concentration in our minds In our daily life, we start living from a place of greater quiet. It's as if we've learned how to quiet the inner dialogue. It's a source of great happiness, great joy in our lives, and of a very different kind than the happiness of sense delight, sense pleasures. It's much deeper, it's more fulfilling. So this purity of mind, this this happiness of concentration, then makes possible the next kind of happiness, an even deeper kind of happiness. And that's the happiness of wisdom. Now when we're concentrated, the mind is very still, it's very calm, it's very peaceful. When we then employ it in the service of awareness, then we open up to the whole realm of insight, the domain of wisdom in our lives. The foundation of this happiness, the foundation of wisdom, is one fundamental attitude and that is the attitude of self-acceptance. And a lot of what we learn in practice is this quality of accepting the whole range of our experience. The, Chinese, the old Chinese Taoists have a wonderful expression for this. They call it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's a, it's a very nice way of expressing the totality of what it means to be human, to be alive. Can we open to the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows? What this means is accepting things just as they are, just as they present themselves. This acceptance does not mean that we give up discriminating awareness. It doesn't mean that we give up the power of wise choice. We still feel certain things as being pleasant and other things being unpleasant. We still recognize skillful states of mind, from unskillful states of mind. So the discriminating power is there, but it's all from a foundation, from a place of non-struggle. It's from a place of acceptance. As we begin to open up to this wide range of experience, the experience of who we are, the tendency of mind at first is to be quite self-judgmental. I think one of the first insights that people have on this level, it was expressed very well by a yogi once in an interview. He came in and he was quite distraught and he said, you know, the mind has no pride. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's true. It'll do anything, you know. And it does do anything. And it presents and displays all kinds of things. And when we sit and first take a look, we don't like a lot of it, you know. We begin to see all those parts of ourselves that may have been covered that we haven't opened to. You know, the jealousy and the fear and the anger and the hatred and the unworthiness and the, the list goes on and on. And so what we need to do is to learn with a real softness. Learn to be with all of these signs. It's okay. Let me see all of it. Through the power of steadiness, through the power of concentration, we learn how to rest very simply and very naturally in the simple awareness of what's happening. We become less judgmental. Our job is to rest in the awareness. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. We're just seeing, we're feeling, we're experiencing it. As we do this, as we learn to rest in the awareness and open, we begin to have a lot of psychological level insights. We really begin to understand a lot of our patterns. We see the same patterns repeated endlessly. We begin to get insight into the complexities of our personality. We begin to feel our bodies really just as they are. Feel all the different sensations free of self-images, and free of fear. We're just resting in the awareness and we get insight into actually how we are. There's a story which, an oft-told story, uh, of Nasruddin, who is a Sufi teaching figure. He's kind of a mixture of saint and wise person and madman and fool and there are hundreds of stories about him this is a story of his going into a bank one day to cash a check he goes to the teller and he has his check and the teller asks for some identification and he doesn't have any he looks around doesn't have any then he has a brainstorm kind of reaches into his coat pocket pulls out a mirror looks into it says yep that's me all right <laughs> <laughs> This is first level insight. It's like we're looking, we're holding up this mirror. We take a look, Uh, that's me, all right. We just see, we see clearly, you know, our personality, the psychological patterns. We really take a look, a clear look. As we continue with this and we put aside some of the proliferating tendencies of the discursive mind. And this can be difficult to do. This is a tricky point in the practice because these psychological insights are very seductive. They're interesting. It's interesting to see ourselves clearly you know, and very directly in this way. It's very easy for the mind to get lost in discursive thought about this. So we need to be watchful about that and come back to the main object of meditation. And as we do and as we continue, we begin to get a deeper kind of insight into the very specific elements of our experience. Not so much the concepts about our personality and our psychology. Begin to feel very specifically the different elements of the body. Begin to feel the pressure and tension and vibration and pulsing and heat and cold. The things which are actually arising not which are the product of our conceptual mind, but through direct experience. We feel it and we recognize very precisely. We begin to see and connect very directly with the nature of thoughts and the nature of emotions. Again, not being lost in the content of it, not being lost in the drama, in the movie of our minds, but recognizing a thought for what it is, we see a thought as a thought. So, I said the other night a common misperception that we have we think of a person and we think we start relating as if it's actually a person instead of just being a thought. Or we think of the future. And we start relating as if that's the future instead of seeing that's only a thought, too. Through practice of a very careful, momentary attention, we see exactly what it is that's going on. We're not fooled, we're not deceived. We see a thought as a thought. We feel the different emotions. What is anger? What is sadness? What is happiness? Not the storyline. We each have our stories. But can we explore the more universal quality of these energies? This is the great discovery that's possible. What is the nature of anger? We can feel it. We don't need anybody to tell us. We can see it, experience it for ourselves. What is the quality of happiness? What is the quality of compassion? This is how we discover what this is, who we are, what our life is about. Slowly, through this very specific attention, the momentum of mindfulness begins to grow. And we start out with this first look at ourselves based on the quality of self-acceptance. That's the foundation which itself is born from some steadiness or concentration in the mind. From self-acceptance comes this first look. Oh, that's who I am. And then we get very specific. We see the specific elements. We see them in their true nature. And then the momentum starts to build. Something which I call the NPMs, which are the notings per minute. You know, the NPMs <laughs> start going up. You know, and At first, maybe we have 10 NPMs. You know, we note this. In the letter, we note this. And, but as the momentum of mindfulness increases, the noting and the noticing gets very, very fast. The Buddha talked of how there are 17 trillion mind moments in a, you know, just in, in a flash. It's hard to imagine how he knew that and how he counted. <laughs> And we may not get to 17 trillion in a moment, but it's quite astounding the rapidity, the refinement of our perception that happens in the practice. We start being aware many, many things per, per moment. At this point, there is a level shift that takes place. There's a real jump in our practice when these NPMs go up. And that is we, start, we stop emphasizing the specific nature of each moment of experience. That no longer becomes the focus of our attention so much, and we start focusing on the nature of the process itself. We start seeing the nature of this flow of phenomena. And the Buddha called this level, he called this purity of view or purity of understanding. And this particular level of insight is the very clear seeing that what we are and what we call life is this process of consciousness and object arising and passing away in each moment. What we are is this collection or constellation of mental, physical phenomena. And so in each moment, what is going on is that there's knowing and an object. Knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, of a smell, of a taste, of a sensation, of a thought, of an emotion. There's knowing an object arising and vanishing in each moment. This is an extremely important understanding. The Buddha gave once a very short discourse, which with his usual lucidity and brilliance, he called it the all. And he described the all the totality of experience in six phrases. When I was studying philosophy at university, it would have been wonderful to have the all described in six phrases. (laughs) What is the all? He said there's the I, visible objects, and the knowing of them. The ear, sound, and the knowing of them. The tongue, taste, and the knowing. The nose, smell, and the knowing. The body, sensations, and the knowing. The mind, mind objects, and the knowing of them. Very simple. Now we create very elaborate stories about our lives, about ourselves, when the mindfulness is strong, when we are really there for what is happening, we see that this is what is the foundation. These are the elements of our life. Knowing an object in each moment, that's what's there. When we see this for ourselves, And again, it comes through the strengthening of concentration, through the development of acceptance, so we can see clearly, not struggling, not judgmental. We get very specific in our awareness of what's happening. The momentum builds up. We begin to see the process of what's happening. It's our first deep taste, our first deep glimpse of the nature of the mind itself. Because we're seeing clearly at this time the knowing arising with each object. We get a very clear sense of just what this knowing is. What is this consciousness? What is this thing we call the mind? It becomes very clear at this time. It's a clear vision of the nature of the mind. From this place, purity of view, purity of understanding, of seeing, knowing an object arising and passing away. And I hope it's clear that this is not some mystical state. This is not something far off. This is what is actually happening in every moment. So all we need to do is to look carefully. There's no place to reach because it's right here. We need just to see We need to notice very carefully what is happening. As we develop the stage of right understanding, what begins to reveal itself very clearly about the process, what the Buddha called the three characteristics, which we've talked about at different times, we see so precisely the truth or the characteristic of impermanence. We see that everything is changing constantly. Things don't last even a moment. When our observation is keen, when our awareness is keen, things are coming and going very, very quickly. This no longer becomes an idea. It becomes the visceral experience. We see it, we feel it, we know it directly. And out of this understanding this very direct and intuitive, intimate understanding of impermanence, the momentariness of phenomena, we begin to comprehend more deeply and more clearly what the Buddha meant by dukkha, the truth of dukkha, or suffering, or unsatisfactoriness, or the quality of things being unsatisfying. Now, Sometimes they're clearly painful, so then the suffering is obvious. But even with pleasant things, they also are changing. And changing very quickly and rapidly. When we see this, it becomes so obvious that they are incapable of being satisfying to us. Not because they're bad or there's anything wrong with them. It's just they don't last. This is a very powerful insight because to the degree that we really see this, we stop grasping so tightly. There's still quite a habit of grasping, and a habit of wanting and desire, but it begins to loosen up a little bit because we have known for ourselves it's not going to do it for us because of the impermanence, because of the momentariness. So this, these are things we know, we learn, we see directly. And it leads into perhaps the most profound of the characteristics, the one that's the most difficult to understand, And that is the understanding of anatta, of selflessness. That there is no one behind this process to whom it is happening. That what we are is this process of change. It's not that the process of change is happening to a being. The feeling that we get very deeply in the practice at this point is that the whole show is going on by itself. It's like the mind has settled back into the process of things arising and passing, and it's all happening by itself. It's really quite a relief. You know, we can let go. Did I mention in this retreat the parachute story? Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a great parachute story. (laughs) Somebody jumps out of a plane. At first there's the excitement of free fall, exhilarating. Then they realize they have no parachute. (laughs) And they're terrified. Terrified. Terror, terror, terror. (laughs) And they're falling, 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 terror, 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 until they realize there's no ground. And everything's okay. There's no ground. We, We can surrender into this flow into this flow of change, the flow of impermanence. It's all happening by itself on a very fundamental level. When when we're just sitting... Okay. (laughs) There's a lot that can be said about this understanding of anatta or selflessness. The basic idea is that it's all happening by itself. It's not happening to anyone that what we are, what we call self, is the process of change. This understanding, this level of purity of view, understanding that in each moment there's knowing an object arising and passing, and through seeing this and seeing the three characteristics, this becomes the gateway to a whole series of insights and even deeper levels of happiness in our lives. What happens is that the perception of phenomena arising and vanishing, arising and passing away, becomes crystal clear. The momentum of mindfulness gets so strong that we see with amazing clarity, in each moment, very distinctly, very clearly, each moment, the experience arises and vanishes, arises and vanishes very, very quickly, very clearly, very sharply. At this time, in the practice, there's so much energy in the system that the mind is luminous. The mind is actually shining, and we begin to experience what it means. You know, when, when you read about it, hear about the luminous mind, luminous consciousness. That's the actual experience at this time, because the energy is so high. The mind is like, if you would imagine, a piece of very fine crystal glass, highly polished. You know, the sparkling clarity of that. That's the quality of consciousness at this time. And again, it's a very immediate and intimate understanding of the nature of consciousness the nature of this lucidity of mind, of luminosity of mind. This particular time in the practice is called Vipassana, Vipassana happiness. You now, when our practice reaches this level, this tremendous joy, this is a joy that far exceeds even the happiness of this, the calm and the stillness of concentration. Because in this Vipassana happiness, there is such precise, clear, luminous insight into the nature of things. It really is as if, for the first time, we've come home. This is what it's like. It's a tremendous joy. But there's a little problem here. And the problem is, but along with this great joy and this great happiness, you know, all the work we've done, we finally feel, yeah, okay, this is the great reward. Something arises which are called the corruptions of insight. And these corruptions of insight are precisely all these qualities which we're enjoying. The clarity, the luminosity, the rapture, the lightness, the joy, the all of these wonderful qualities. And they're called corruptions of insight because at this time, our insight is not yet mature. And because of the extraordinary happiness that they bring, we become attached to them. It's not that the qualities in themselves are unwholesome, but rather the tendency of the mind to become attached. And so it takes renewed effort to again simply come back to the noting, even of these very extraordinary states you know, rapture, bliss, happiness, joy. We just note, 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 note. And so we go through this phase. Then we hit a period that actually is a little bumpy in the practice. Because we start tuning into the suffering side of things, we begin to see everything dissolving very quickly. We're not now seeing the arising and passing. We're just seeing the dissolution of phenomena. Everything is vanishing. And when this starts happening very quickly, it gets quite fearful because there's no place to take a stand. You know, it's, as if it, it's as if we're trying to uh, hold on to something which is continually dissolving. It's as if the rug is continually pulled out from under us. We go through some phases. It's called phase of misery, of disgust, of terror. It's colloquial, colloquially known as the rolling up the mat stage. You know, because all yogis want to do is roll up the mat and leave. So, at this time in the practice, when we're seeing this dissolution and the kind of misery of things, it takes a lot of gentleness. We really have to be quite strong in our resolve just to be with it, to open to it, to stay with it. Out of it comes what is called the urge for deliverance, the urge for freedom. This strong desire in the mind, the strong motivation let me be free. And it's from this strong urge, this inner urge that gets very powerful in our practice and in our lives we reach a place of equanimity where the mind comes to this wonderful place of balance. And again, this is a very happy time in the practice again but it's not the happiness of that excitement you know, of the, of the brilliance of mind. This is a much deeper happiness It's a much more pervasive, the mind is perfectly poised. There's a tremendous softness and lightness in the body, in the mind, and it's completely impartial. Whatever arises is fine. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant. There is no movement of the mind. Very powerful state, this state of equanimity, profound equanimity. And it's out of this equanimity, it's out of this place of balance, as all the factors of enlightenment mature as they ripen, that the mind opens spontaneously and intuitively to the unconditioned, to the unborn. In the Buddhist terminology, this is called Nibbana. This is another reality entirely. Nibbana is known as the highest happiness. It's a happiness which is beyond even the happiness of great insight or understanding because it transcends the mind itself. It's as if there's a putting down of the burden. It's a stage of equanimity the mind ripens, the mind matures. The factors of enlightenment become very strong. It's out of that very great balance that the mind can open. And it opens to this transcendent reality. There are many names for this. Different traditions call this different things. The unborn, the unformed, the unconditioned, Nibbana. This experience has transformative power in our lives. It has the power to uproot from the stream of consciousness different of the defilements of mind. In Pali, they're called kilesas, or those things which cause suffering in the mind. This moment of opening to the highest reality can uproot the belief in the sense of self, of I. We go beyond that, that strong attachment to self. And at subsequent stages, and progressively, it uproots the force of greed in the mind and of anger in the mind, of hatred in the mind. And So this is the very powerful transformative process that takes place. Begin to understand things from a radically different perspective this experience of the unconditioned or the unborn, in the moment of that experience, it's as if we put down the burden. And often that's the phrase that you find in the suttas and the discourses. There are two images which have come to mind, just describing that, which will give you, I think, a good sense of the relief and the ease of it. Years ago, when I lived and practiced in India, during the summer months, it was very hot on the plains, I would go up to the mountains. They, they call them hill stations. They're about seven, 8,000 feet. I would rent a cottage and I'd just be practicing up there. And this one place where I was living in Dalhousie, the bazaar was sort of midway up the mountain and then our house was... Uh, more at the top. And we had to take this very long walk. It was about an hour walk, very steep, very steep path up the mountain. And often as we'd be walking up, we'd be seeing um, some of the mountain people carrying these huge, huge beams of lumber on their back. And they'd be bent over. Their bodies would be parallel to the road. You know, burden them. It was amazing to see. I could barely carry myself up the mountain. <laughs> they were carrying these huge, huge loads. And right at the top of the path, the top of the mountain, there was this chai shop. There was this tea shop where people would, you know, just stop and hang out for a while. And often I'd be up there, and these people would be coming up, and just at the top, they'd sort of take off the load and. Just, phew, And I said, can you imagine the sense of relief of just putting down that burden? That's a moment of nibbana. (laughs) Putting down the burden. Another more homey image, which I'm sure it's an experience you've all had. Sometimes when you're sitting in your house or your apartment, you have that experience of the hum of the refrigerator going off. You know, and all of a sudden there's, uh, uh, you know, it's that settling into the silence. And while it was on, we didn't even know it was on. We didn't know it was on until it went off. The refrigerator hum is this process, this ongoing process this endless process of mind and body, of knowing an object, knowing an object. And we don't even know the burdensomeness of it until it actually goes off. And we experience that moment of silence, that moment of peace. We get a taste, we get a glimpse of that highest kind of happiness This is is the path. What the Buddha taught on so many levels and in so many ways was how to be happy. If you want the happiness of sense pleasures, of sense delights of different kinds, these are the causes. These are the conditions. Purity of action, purity of conduct. If you want the happiness of stillness, of peace, need to develop concentration, one-pointedness of mind. If you want the happiness of insight, need to develop purity of view, purity of understanding. If you want to experience the Vipassana happiness, that great luminosity of mind, need to practice Vipassana. Practice mindfulness. Build up the momentum of mindfulness. If we want the highest happiness, the happiness of nibbana, we need to walk this path. It's as if it's as if there's a mountain, and we want to reach the peak, and we have a vision of the summit, and it's the vision of the summit which inspires us. But still, we have to take every step. If we just sit and dream of the summit, we don't get any closer. We have to take the steps. And if we take the steps, we assuredly reach the summit. That is the beauty of the path. We can walk on it. And we can experience all of these kinds of happiness. And what is particularly nice about all this is that when we aim for the highest kind of happiness, all the others come. If we aim for the happiness of awakening, we are already practicing the conditions for the happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness of the quiet mind, the happiness of vipassana, the happiness of nibbana. We aim for the highest, and everything else comes. Just in closing... I think something that is very important to understand is that we need not cast this journey in time. That often we create a sense of this journey, this path. Yes, I'll practice for 20 years or 25 years or 30 years and maybe I'll get someplace. We need not cast it in time. All of these insights, all of these understandings can happen in a moment. It's all right here, right now. We need to open to it. We need to see our experience with clarity, with awareness. These possibilities of happiness exist for us right here. And this is the great joy of understanding. Let's sit for a few minutes.